This is A New Angle, a show about cool people doing awesome things in and around Montana. I'm your host, Justin Angle. This show is supported by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and the University of Montana College of Business. Hey folks, welcome back and thanks for tuning in. Today's guest is Taylor Irvine, a Salish and Kootenai photojournalist from the Flathead Indian Reservation. Historically, Native communities have been represented by like stereotypical photos sure. in yeah. regalia, always in poverty porn, you know, all those kinds of things. And I work really hard to make my images not that. When I have a moment where someone's just human, that's what I look for the most. Taylor is a National Geographic explorer, and her work has been featured in the New York Times, the Washington Post, ESPN, CNN, and the Smithsonian, among other prominent outlets. She's especially interested in representing the diversity within Native America and complex issues facing tribal communities. Taylor, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. So tell us, where did you grow up and what did your parents do? I grew up on the Flathead Reservation. It's in northwest Montana mm-hmm. between Missoula and Kalispell. And my dad is a lineman for the power company there. And my mother ran a daycare. Sure. And you came to the University of Montana to study journalism. What uh, motivated that choice? I didn't know what I wanted to do when I came here. Originally, I took a lot of prereqs, and one of those was a a journalism class. And so I liked it, and I stuck with it. (laughs) Yeah, what was it about it you liked? I think just how interesting it was. It was... Actually, like on paper, a very boring class. It's the history of media. Um, <laughs> that does, that is a boring title for a class. Yeah, history of media something. And I was like, oh, God. But then I took it and we had like chapters and some chapters were, were pretty boring, you know, but the other ones were really interesting. And I really liked about photography, specifically how the photo still had impact, even, you know, decades later, where I still seen a photo and I was like, oh, wow, like it hits you right in the chest, yeah. you know. So you mentioned photography. So what stage of this process did did you come in as as someone who was into photography or did you decide once you were here studying journalism that photography was kind of your medium? I think like a lot of people in my generation, I like taking photos. I from, you know, the Instagram era where it just started happening and people posting more online and cameras were more accessible than they've ever been. But I never thought it'd be a career necessarily. I just thought like photos are fun, but everyone wants to be a photographer, everyone likes taking photos. So yeah. what kind of career is possible there? Um, it wasn't until I got into the university where I was like, oh, this could be a job and I could do it. And what is it that you think, like, as you're, as you're studying photography in school, like, what is it that you think allows somebody to create a career in photography and distinguish themselves from somebody that just is really good at snapping Instagram shots? I mean, honestly, it's a really fine line. I think anyone can tell stories and that's what I love about photography mm-hmm. most. You don't need to be at a certain caliber to, to get into it. But I think the storytelling aspect differs where I think, you know, on social media, you're kind of telling your own story, yeah. but through journalism, you're telling community stories, places and people that you don't know necessarily. And you're kind of just documenting history, which I think is the part of it I like the most. So talk. let's talk some, about some of those stories. So you get out of school here in 2018. During your time here, did you go, you covered the Dakota Access Pipeline. Was that kind of your first immersive journalism experience or how did you kind of get into to that? When I got to the program, you know, we're studying basic 101 classes. I got an internship at my tribal paper for the first semester okay. that I was here, I think. Um, and it was very low key. Um, I just kind of went there and begged for a job and, and they gave it to me and I'm like, yeah, sure, kid, do whatever. And then the images I made from that, I got a bigger internship at the Billings Gazette in Billings. Sure. And that's where I kind of cut my teeth a bit. And then I came back 
the next semester after that summer, and that's when the Standing Rock was happening. And it was more something that's happening on my my social media feeds where I see and I was like, oh, what is what's going on? What's happening? And I went there just out of curiosity. I wasn't necessarily planning on on documenting the whole thing. That's kind of how journalism works, I think. You you get curious and you go find things and then you find stories there. Yeah. Yeah. And so then you graduate and covered sports for a while. And that's <laughs> quite a bit of your your stunning photography on your website is 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 covering sports at a variety of levels, professional, collegiate, high school. I love sports photography. I think it's so much fun. Yeah, it's just always so dramatic, right? Like there, are, um, whether it's, you know, Little League Baseball or it's all the way up to the NFL, like there's always a winner and a loser and there's always so much that feels like it's on the line. Like even when you're photographing, like your, your heart beats a little fast and there's like a close game and you're like, what's going to happen? And I don't usually have a stake in any of the sporting events, but I'm like, oh my God, I'm, I'm really into this. And it's also technically really difficult, which I like a lot. Okay. Talk more about that. Like, I mean, because I'll snap photos at a game. They're just awful. How, how, how do these, you know, you see these giant lenses on the sideline and these folks with like nerves of steel as the action's going on. And yeah, how do you do it? Yeah, I think I wasn't aware of how much of a workout would be. So we do have those huge lenses and they're just ginormous on a little tiny camera. And uh, you just have to kind of predict. There's so much that goes into it. So for the NFL, for example... We had to file like 100 photos at halftime, which is about like 10 minutes. And so you have to have them off your camera and edited and ready to go in about 10 minutes wow. and captioned to get to the to the paper so they can upload it to the media very quickly. Okay. Um, and so when you're shooting, you have to like predict where the ball is going to go, right? And you don't know. And you don't know what the big moment of the game is going to be. And so it's really stressful, but it, it really helps like your reflexes and... Yeah, you just got to follow the ball, and sometimes sometimes it works, and sometimes you back focus, and the ref isn't focused, or you know, sure. sometimes it's just hit or miss. But it, it really helps the workflow and help you get a lot better quicker. And I would suppose it would be competitive in the sense that there's a bunch of other journalists looking to capture the same moments and predict the same moments, or maybe you're gambling on different things unfolding at different times. Yeah, yeah, and usually, so I worked there for the paper, and yeah. so we had multiple people covering different angles, got and so it. you could kind of hopefully, if you messed up or missed it hope somebody else got it but you know if they're in your end zone and you and you miss the play then it's like you have to have a conversation with your editor that's not that great like i almost got it uh, it's a little blurry i don't know <laughs> yeah so how long did you do that for the for the was it for the tampa bay newspaper yeah tampa bay times okay. um i was there for about two years yeah. um in florida and then i decided to make the jump back home mostly for the pandemic <laughs> um it brought me home which has been both you know a blessing and also different than I'm used to. Sure, sure. And so since you've been, when did the the opportunity to become a Nat Geo explorer and, and those sorts of, you know, more independent um, photojournalist opportunities come to pass? So I started freelancing in 2019, I believe. Yeah. And I was finishing up my time at the Tampa Bay Times and ESPN reached out and they wanted me to do a story uh, in Browning on the missing and murdered indigenous woman movement through boxing. And so that was kind of my first leap into freelance. And I didn't know what I was doing exactly. (laughs) Because it was a very, it's very difficult to make a leap from having the support of an entire newsroom to just, it's you and you're managing, you know, every emails and every aspect of the business. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's very scary and it's a lot more expensive because you have to buy your own gear and you have to front all the costs like you know i think espn asked me to because i was still living in florida fly to browning for a week um get a hotel for a week and you know buy all the food and all the expenses for an entire week rent a car and i was poor (laughs) i didn't have that's a big ask (laughs) i didn't have the money and i was really worried that i was going to miss my shots for the freelance because it's scary and that's the hardest part about breaking into the industry i think is the financial aspect of it 
And so I was just very transparent with my editor and said, I can't afford to front the flight. I can't afford to front the hotel room. I understand that you want me to photograph this, but you guys have to step up to help me. And they did. They used the company card, which I didn't know was even a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's kind of how I got my big jump into freelance, because in that that project was about nine months and it paid very well and it allowed me to um, have the cushion to front my other freelance expenses. And then the National Geographic grant that I received also helped a lot. Uh, it was right around the time I started freelancing and I was applying for a lot of grants for my big projects um, on Blood Quantum. And I applied for three and I got them all. <laughs> so I was really um, excited. Yeah. But again, I had no idea how to navigate the financial aspects of it. And so I did the first chapter for the Smithsonian, and the second chapter is coming out with National Geographic. Yeah, so you mentioned the the Blood Quantum work and the title being Reservation Mathematics. For the listeners that don't know, just explain to the extent possible the whole Blood Quantum system and history. Blood Quantum is so complex and, and so complicated, but essentially it boils down to Native Americans who are members of tribes are assigned a fraction of how much Native they are at birth. And so uh, you can only be one tribe. You can't be multiple, recognized by the federal government. And it just, it affects everything from land access to healthcare to education if you're not a member. So most tribal members have to be a quarter. And so that depends all on your lineage going back to the 1900s where federal agents came to reservations and basically said like who was native and who wasn't native. So you started with a full blood. And then if the full blood from this tribe had a child with someone from another tribe, they only count one tribe, so then it's a half-blood, you know? it's It disintegrates very quickly, and I think the easiest example that I use is uh, my dad is nearly full-blood Salish and Kootenai. Um, my mother is Crow, so those are two different tribes. So when I was born, they had to pick which tribe to put me in. And since we lived on the flat reservation, um, they chose my father's tribe. And so that immediately erased all my mother's blood from my blood quantum. And so my fraction is seven sixteenths which is a 16th under half, right? <laughs> Stay yep. with me. Um, yep. And um, I need a quarter. My child needs to be a quarter to be enrolled. And so since I am just under half, my child won't be enrolled unless I have a kid with another person from my tribe, which sounds like easy, like, okay, just date someone from your tribe, right? But there are only 8,000 members of my tribe. I'm related to almost all of them. And if you take out, you know, people who are too old and the women and it's just a very very small number i'm left with which is how it's designed to eradicate tribes so so we will cease to exist okay so let's let's push on that a little bit that piece about it being designed to eradicate the tribes i mean i don't think that's a a a leap that that many of the listeners maybe they had heard of blood quantum but hearing about how you you lay it out there yeah it seems like certainly that's a practical outcome in many ways yeah, it's designed that way. They first incorporated it to kind of see how many natives there were, right? To to count um, the enemy, yeah, yeah, so to speak. But then when you make it that you could only procreate within your tribe, tribes have historically married between each other so to avoid sure. what's happening right now, right? And so it's just a system that's designed to fail because you can't procreate within the same group for too long before you run into issues that we're running in today, where yeah. it's like you're really late to everybody and there's not enough people. And so how does this play out within tribal communities? I would assume there's kind of a range of feelings and opinions about the the practice. Yeah, um, it's really difficult to change. Tribal nations have the power to change it in their constitution themselves, but they've been operating on this system since the 1900s, and it's designed into every aspect of 
the sovereignty, right? The constitutions yeah. and the their ties with the federal government, like everything is drawn on blood quantum. And so it's very hard to change a system that's been in place for, you know, over almost 100 years. And um, there's not really a good answer to what to change it with, I think, is what the problem is. No one knows exactly how to replace the system. If it's not blood quantum, then what? How do right. we decide membership? And it's very complex because it's tied to land access. And so you have tribes who have fought to protect their land for centuries. And it's scary to think about if they open it up, that that could open up the resources as well. Was your entry point to understanding this system or being curious about this system, your own upbringing with parents that come from different tribes? Yeah, I think that played a big part. When I was a kid, I didn't realize it. It's just something that you grew up with. You know, you yeah. have to marry someone from your tribe or we're going to go extinct, you know, that kind of thing. And you don't realize the pressure that is until until I was older anyways. And then I realized how bizarre that is. You know, you leave home and you go to college and none of my friends dealt with this. You know, they could marry or have kids with whoever they want and there's not that much pressure. I mean, there's pressure from families, you know, to date certain people or, you know, to stay within their own culture, but it's not the pressure of date your thin your culture or their culture will cease to exist, right? And so I think I was like, why why is this like that? And, you know, doing research and I was like, of course it goes back to colonization and thinking about my own life and how it's affected me and who I've been able to date and and I was just curious what other people thought about it as well. Sure. So you have this this curiosity about a system with so many complex sort of origins and now effects and how this plays out in your community as we've talked about. How do you then approach investigating and telling stories about this system with your camera? Yeah, I've had this idea for a very long time. It's a story I want to do since I was a student at the university. And I wanted to be first technically good enough to tell the story with photography. And so I waited. And then I also waited because I was nervous. How do you how do you document something that doesn't really exist, right? Because yeah. blood quantum's not real. <laughs> it's, so it's like, it's a made up number. And so how do I photograph a made up number? And I really struggled with how to approach that because it's so large. But right around the time I started receiving the grants, all three of my siblings are actually pregnant um, or expecting. And facing the same sort of choices and challenges that you face. Yeah, and so it's uh, the things that I had. And so my brother, he's having a ch- he had a child with a Navajo woman. And because she's not from our tribe, their child is not going to be enrolled in our tribe, even though it's going to grow up there and live there and be part of that culture. And my other sibling, she had a baby with a child member, and so their kid is enrolled. And so kind of the, the difference between the two and what that means when it plays out in, in lifetime and in real life and the struggles and that comes with that. Like my sister and her partner had to go to the tribal office to make sure that they weren't enrolled, right? They go back as far as they can um, to make sure that there's no lineage mixed up there. Uh, my brother, he's an avid hunter. Our family's a big hunter. Um, his child will never be able to hunt with him on tribal land, which is a big thing. So I, I think that's an important point for the listener that doesn't necessarily understand some of these um, systems of en- enrollment in the tribes. We hear that term, you're an enrolled mem- member of the Salish Kootenai tribe, but enrollment comes with it certain rights and privileges, I guess you would say, to land, to hunting rights, to access. Talk about about that. Like, What does it mean for the children of your siblings? One will have certain access to things and the other won't. I think one of the most difficult things with this blood quantum is that you're quantifying an identity, right? And yeah. it's it's very complex because the only other things that use blood quantum, you know, are horses and dogs, right? You mm-hmm. know, purebred horse, a purebred dog, and then you have natives. 
And so it's just this clinically cold number that's attached and it, it affects real people. And I think people forget that. And under the system, you know, you can have a child who is a full full blood, which I don't like using that term because it doesn't really exist. But, you know, you have a, a very native child who's a member of, you know, six different tribes and not enough of any one tribe to be enrolled. And then she's discounted as a child member because she doesn't have enough blood to get into one. You know, it's it's full of flaws. And so I think my goal to document this is just kind of show how it just kind of show how many flaws are in this system, essentially. And so you have my brother who is native and his partner who is native and their child who's not going to be the right native on the right reservation, which just doesn't make any sense. I think they struggle with that. My brother talks about it a little bit. Um, I've interviewed him many times on it. And he talks about, you know, how important hunting's into him. Like he hunted mm-hmm. with our grandfather yeah. and my father and it really brings us close together and it's a way to learn about the land and learn about where we come from and hear stories about the area and she's not going to get that because she can never hunt there. And so that's just something that she won't be able to do. And she won't be able to camp with us without a permit, you know, and all these things that are going to make her feel othered from her other cousin, you know, or her other cousins. She has many. And it's just another barrier between people and trying to separate, separate us, I think. And it's complicated and families are separated and it's, it's very controversial and it's, there's not an easy answer for it. We'll be back to my conversation with Taylor Irvine after this short break. A New Angle is supported by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and UM's College of Business. Access to capital, broadband, and education are three ingredients any community needs for success. Hi, this is Sheila Stearns, Commissioner Emerita of the Montana University System and former president of the University of Montana. You are listening to one of my favorite podcasts, A New Angle. Welcome back to A New Angle. I'm speaking with photojournalist Taylor Irvine about her study of blood quantum. So you've got one chapter out. The next chapter is a work in progress. Is that right? Yep. The first chapter is out with the Smithsonian, um, and the next one comes out with National Geographic. Very good. And how many chapters will there be? Oh, God, it could be a book, probably. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And so for listeners interested, like, how did you, obviously, through talking with your family members it's and so forth but but how did you kind of educate yourself on this system for for folks that are learning about this complicated and and in many ways maddening and upsetting to hear about practice like how would you advise people to educate themselves i think you just have to follow indigenous journalists who i'm not the only one who yeah. reports on this stuff there are sure. many others there are podcasts out there that talk about it all my relations podcast has an episode on it um, there are a lot of lawyers who deal with it. So I think you have to follow, you know, indigenous educators and scholars and journalists and kind of create a wide bubble so you can get, you know, as many opinions and as many facts as you can on it. It's complicated and there's no one website to look at. Um, you just have to do the research and, and find folks who are who are working on it. Mm-hmm. So in addition to the, 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 the reservation mathematics work, tell us about some of your other projects. What's, what's exciting you at the moment? A lot of the work I do focuses on indigenous communities in Montana. And so I do a wide range of work on that for a number of publications. I just covered Chief Earl Oprison's funeral right. um, in Browning for the New York Times. And I think my favorite part about working in Montana is that I've been to Browning probably five times, maybe in the last year, maybe probably more. And I'm getting a sense of community there. And so it kind of came a little bit to culmination with the Earl Olperson piece where they opened up and they were really kind and welcoming. And 
it was overall just like a really great experience about, you know, it's really hard to go in these communities when people are mourning and they're sad and be like, hi, tell me why you're so sad and uh, let me photograph you at the funeral. It's a big ask and it's not one that I take lightly. We wouldn't have our jobs without the people who open up like that. And I am just eternally grateful always. And members of the Blackfeet Nation really opened up and told wonderful stories about him. And that's kind of my favorite work I get to do when I get to meet people and get to hear their stories and, and tell them. And I hope that they're happy with the piece. So that's my last project that I worked on. Um, I also follow the missing and murdered Indigenous woman crisis. I've done a few projects on that following uh, families who have lost loved ones and who are still searching for loved ones and who are still looking for answers. I feel very honored to be able to tell those stories and be able to have the families trust me with with the stories of the loved ones. On your website and in this conversation, the word complex is used. You're interested in these complex topics and stories. How does that translate into your conception of what makes for a photograph that you want to use to represent some of these stories? I think the photos that are photos people haven't seen, you know, the outside the box ones. Um, historically, Native communities have been represented by like stereotypical photos sure. in yeah. regalia, always in poverty porn, you know, all those kinds of things. And I work really hard to make my images not that. So a lot of my images just have people being people in it. And I think when I have a moment where someone's just human. That's what I look for the most. With the MMIW one, you know, there was um, one of the daughters of one of the women who was murdered. She was, you know, putting dirt on her, her mother's grave. And to me, you know, that's something that we all do. We all go to visit graves and take care of them. But, you know, she's eight and yeah. she has a shovel and she's, you know, patting down her, her mother's grave. And it's just moments like that hit me really hard. And it's just like, this shouldn't be. And I think that illustrates the the whole entire MMIW movement, like this shouldn't be. And so a lot of your projects are, are pretty heavy. Juxtapose that with some of your sports journalism. There's certainly heavy moments in sports, but it's a winner or loss. And you, you can feel like it's the end of your world, but it's, it's really not. Yeah. <laughs> but also tremendous highs as well captured in your work. How do you kind of balance your sort of exploration of the highs and lows of emotion? I really struggle with that often. Historically, journalists um, were expected to go into these communities and be robots and not have any feelings and, you know, witness these horrific events and be okay. And I think we've had a 180 in the industry where we don't do that anymore. Journalists are people and they have Mm -hmm. feelings and the work we cover really affects us. And, you know, I deal with that a lot, too. The work I cover is extremely extremely emotional and it's it gets really hard and this last year I had a string of really tough assignments you know I love doing this work I think it's really important but it, it does take a toll I covered mothers who lost a child in the Bureau of Indian Affairs jails and I covered you know the missing and murdered Indigenous woman crisis so I'm covering these families who are mourning all the time and also working on just incredibly heavy heavy stuff and you know this last year I lost a lot of family to COVID and doing COVID stories you know it's it takes a toll. And so for me, I had to take probably a month off because it was just really, really sad. And I think what counteracts that, you know, the highs are having having the work published and having you know the family be grateful and having people have eyes on, on the issues. But the lows are definitely there. It's definitely hard to it's definitely hard to balance that, I think. And I, I do try to do sports stories as much as I can, or stories that are a little more uplifting. 
but the stories I really want to tell are, are inherently right. Um, right. <laughs> inherently sad and hard, and that's why I want to tell them, but I'm also working on balancing that better. It's a little more difficult because there aren't sports uh, major teams in Montana. There's yeah, no... Not as <laughs> so um, I'm working on more pitches to, to travel and tell sports stories. Okay. You're young, right? And that's not a, a knock. I mean, your work is fantastic, but you've got so much more life ahead of you to learn and grow and tell more stories or tell them in different ways. I mean, how do you think about the years ahead and what is it about, what it, what are you working on to uh, to get better at what you do or do things differently or things like that? Yeah, this is exciting. Um, I've gotten to do a lot in my career so far. Um, it's been fantastic and fun and a whirlwind and I'm doing things I never thought I'd be able to do. You know, I'm, I'm just from a small town in Montana and now I meet with editors in New York and I travel to New York often and I travel across the country photographing which just feels like an unreal job like I get to do this every day is incredible that being said I don't know what the future holds I think right now I'm really focused on representation I am a co-founder of a thing called Indigenous Photograph which is a database of over 70 Indigenous photographers for editors to to find when they want to find someone to do that work is to help get more Indigenous photographers hired in the industry because we hear often that, oh, I would love to have uh, an Indigenous photographer for that. I just don't know where to find them. Mm-hmm. I just don't know where they are. And it's like, okay, well, here they are. Now right. Now, what's your excuse? You right. know? Exactly. And so I'm working on that and kind of working to create a community of Native photographers who can have resources shared between them and have more opportunities. So it's been very exciting. And so I'm working a lot of the behind-the-scenes stuff to get sure. other Indigenous photographers hired and, and recognized and noticed for the incredible work that they're doing. At the same time, I'm still photographing. I have my Nat Geo project that I'm still working on. Mm-hmm. And I think in the future, I might look into more editing roles because that's kind of the main gatekeeper, I think, between <laughs> photographers and publications is who's hiring the photographers, and that's usually an editor role. And so eventually, I think I'd like to try that and sure. see if it fits. But who knows? I don't know. <laughs> Things could change. I could do something different next year. No one knows. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's the beauty of it, right? It's fluid. You know, you, you seem like somebody who has been able to combine, you know, passion, ability, hustle, execution to create opportunity for yourself and then use that opportunity to grow into more opportunity. And now you're in a position where you can open up opportunity to others. How would you advise somebody who's maybe hearing this and wanting to break into journalism, wanting to break into photography or somehow, you know, create opportunity for themselves? How, what advice might you have for somebody getting started? I think if you're getting started, my biggest advice is just to get out and take photos. Any, any camera works. Like the best camera you have is the camera you have in your pocket or with you at the time. And just, you know, find things that interest you and, and find things that you're curious about. And, you know, if you're curious about it, I'm sure other people are too. And so dive into those stories that you really want to know because I think that's what I did is I, I followed things I was curious about and it just kind of led into other things and it just bounces off each other and so I think if you follow your curiosity that'll be extremely helpful as well as follow people online who are doing the work that you like and find people who are inspiring you and, and keep you going I think I often hit walls where I'm just feeling so uninspired and and on one of the lows we talked about earlier. And then I I go to a portfolio review and I see people who are doing incredible work. I go to a workshop and people are just incredibly inspiring. There's so much fantastic work out there that I admire and that I, I, that I want to emulate. I think they're fantastic and it really hypes me up when I'm, when I'm feeling kind of down. And I think as someone just getting into it, find that work that really inspires you, makes you excited about the job, makes you excited to do this because that's what's going to carry you through the career. Yeah. Great advice. 
So for folks that want to maybe get inspiration from your work, where can they, where would you direct them? What can they find you online? They can find me online at Taylor Irvine, uh, both on Instagram and Twitter. My first name is spelled T-A-I-L-Y-R. And then my website is TaylorIrvine.com. Awesome. Well, Taylor, thanks for telling us about your work. Best of luck. And uh, I look forward to more great things. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to A New Angle. We really appreciate it. And we're coming to you from Studio 49, a generous gift from University of Montana alums Michelle and Lauren Hansen. A New Angle is presented by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and the University of Montana College of Business. With additional support from Consolidated Electrical Distributors, Drum Coffee, and Montana Public Radio. AJ Williams is our producer. BTO, Jeff Amet, and John Wicks made our music. Editing by Nick Mott. And Jeff Meese is our master of all things sound. Thanks a lot, and see you next time.